Welcome to the Ask Why podcast, a series of conversations exploring the future of learning and the future of work with experts ranging from professional educators to investors, company builders, and individual learners. The way we learn and the way we work is changing rapidly. Artificial intelligence is automating ever more tasks around us, putting pressure on all of us to rescale and upscale at accelerated rates while dealing with a level of unprecedented information overload. The education system, built for an age of information scarcity and around a broadcast model of teachers and learners, is simply no longer fit for purpose. But what can be put in its place? If this is a topic you're interested in, I invite you to subscribe to our podcast by searching for hashtag AskWhy in your favorite podcast app or follow us on YouTube or TikTok and catch the video feed of these conversations, which are happening in VR. Today's guest is Frank Viciano. Frank started at Goldman Sachs, had a brief stint at Metris Energy before joining Udemy. He started out as director of content before various positions saw him ultimately take on the role of chief operating officer after six years. Today, he's an advisor to various startups, including Mindstone. I'm Frank Viciano. I am a startup advisor and fractional executive living here in Amsterdam, where I've been for about the last three years. In terms of, of my background, I actually started off out of school in, in finance, spent five years on Wall Street from 2004 to 2009, and had a really kind of interesting development there. But I think if I'm honest, I realized pretty quickly that it wasn't my life's calling. If I, you know, was heroically successful. I made a, a multi-billion dollar company, a couple million bucks, and, and that wasn't what got me excited. So after that, left Wall Street, went back to school out in California with a pretty specific focus and, and looking for social impact. So I was all about for-profit market-based approaches to social problems, which at the time got me really excited about energy, education, and healthcare. I helped start an energy efficiency company, so sort of in the climate sustainability space, right out of business school, which was my first kind of foray into the world of startups before ultimately joining Udemy in the beginning of 2013. And uh, Udemy is an education marketplace, basically a place where you can learn anything because it's also a platform where you can teach anything. And I started when we were about 15 people and stayed there for the better part of seven years. So left when we were you know, close to 700 people. So quite a, an interesting ride. And I think just in terms of the, like the, the path that that looked like, it was, you know, certainly not all straight up and to the right. You know, I had a chance to basically see that growth trajectory from a lot of different vantage points, started out running, basically was the first salesperson. So recruiting instructors to teach on the platform, we figured out how to make that work, which then led to needing to build out account management and community management and operations. And pretty quickly, I was the, the general manager of the supply side of the marketplace. So all things oriented around instructors, sales, business development, marketing, operations, product. We were able to grow the, the sort of you know flow of new courses on Udemy from you know tens a month to you know multiple thousands per month. And that then unlocked a new chapter of growth, which was international expansion. So I led the international expansion push we basically moved from you know that being one percent of Udemy's business being non-English to you know nowadays it's about fifty percent, so a huge growth driver. And then after that, ran marketing for a couple of years, so all of our user acquisition and retention before being the the COO for the last couple of years. Very 
very extensive, very lot, lot, lots to dig into for sure. I sure. actually not clocked at you. So you were on Wall Street until 2009. So you had the two, 2008 fun stuff that you went through on Wall Street. I was. Yeah. <laughs> and if, if you sort of think about it, it, you know, I'm sure one, one of the things we'll talk about today is sort of like, what are the, the principles and philosophies that sort of underpin how I think about ed tech and, you know, businesses generally, but I basically saw the highest of the highs in terms of, you know, the, the bubble developing and expanding on wall street. And then I was effectively sitting on a bond trading floor, working with banks and financial institutions when that all came to a crash. And so I had a front row seat, saw both like the, the people side of what that meant. And then also, you know, saw in, in hindsight, you know, the, the ways that maybe we could have seen that in advance. And so I think, you know, being a part of kind of a, a front row seat with a young enough point in my career where I was still low stakes really gave me like a huge amount of, of learning opportunity. And so it certainly like shapes the the way that I think about businesses and companies today. Yeah, I can, can only imagine. Yeah, yeah it must have been really interesting. So the there are two two questions I ask everyone. And these uh, these fireside chats, or I mean, we really should have a fire somewhere to to symbolize the fireside. But <laughs> the first one that I ask everyone is, what is one thing you believe to be true that most people in your industry would disagree with? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I, I was thinking a little bit about this, and the first thing that tripped me up was, you know, what exactly is my field? And I guess if you were to sort of say. I'm at this intersection of, you know, tech and maybe advisors and consultants. One of the things that maybe overlaps between those two is, how do I say this diplomatically? Hyperactive sense of, of confidence that can at times border on ego, right? Both in order to be an entrepreneur and in order to, you know, feel comfortable advising entrepreneurs and, and companies. You have to feel really confident that you have a strong point of view and you know how things should be. You have a point of view on what right looks like. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, if you take that as kind of the backdrop, one of the things that I feel really, really strongly and, and is pretty core to, to my identity and my approach is that I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing and probably neither do you. Right. So my kind of core philosophy is we're all kind of stumbling around in the dark doing our best to try to figure it out as we go along. And if we tell ourselves we have a really strong vision and know exactly what the world's going to look like, or if we can, you know, reverse engineer a successful outcome to, you know, tell ourselves that, you know, we, we knew that was going to happen all along, I actually think we're deluding ourselves. And so a lot of times, you know, in my own work and now when I work with companies, my core starting point is admitting myself and then getting the, the people that I work with to admit we don't know and we're just figuring it out and i think when you start from that kind of like foundational principle you start to jump pretty quickly toward you know trying to build a hypothesis driven learning machine where you're trying to figure it out based on the information you have rather than just sort of you know sailing right into it so it's about kind of risk identification risk mitigation rather than kind of blindly charging forward okay and how how would you square that against people with track records so like how or how do you think about people with track records and kind of how that does that provide them with an advantage is there an indicator that people 
are better at figuring stuff out than others? Or like, how, how do you think about that, about success, I guess, and, and, and the probability of success within that framework? Well, it doesn't mean that there aren't people with extraordinarily deep, rich backgrounds, and there aren't people that are better at spotting the right trends to attach themselves to. So I don't think it's completely incompatible with there being that with people that have track records. But I do think that there are plenty of people with track records where they weren't necessarily the causal factor for that success. They were merely a part of it and and rode along with it. And so a lot of the question is for the... Yeah. So a lot of the, the, I think, point is for people who've been successful and have been on one of those really successful rides, do they look back and see that and say, this was my role in it? Or do they look back and focus on what they can learn from it that they can then use to inform the people that they work with or the thing that they do next. And if you yourself are really focused on the learnings along the way, then I think you do get better at you know replowing those learnings into the thing you do next, which to me then can lead to people having multiple successes. Yeah, that makes sense. And from your personal perspective, so in terms of your, your life, and we kind of touched on it, a little bit before, but what was the best learning experience or experiences that you have had in your life and and why? Yeah, I think that's a, a great question. You know, as I was reflecting on it a little bit, it kind of forced me to to look back over the course of my life and and think through a little bit, you know, what my relationship was with with learning and and maybe how it evolved. And one of the things that really stood out was in the early days of, of me, right? So when I was a kid, learning was very much kind of a competitive sport. I remember one of my earlier memories is when I was in first grade, you know, we were, we were learning math and we had these series of colored workbooks that we had to progress through, right? You started with addition and then as you got kind of more and more, you built on it and eventually you got up to fractions and, and all these kind of different things. And for me, I don't remember the things I was learning but I do remember at any given point in that progression exactly how far I was behind or ahead of my best friend. So learning was very much all about the destination and all about kind of how quickly and competitively I could get from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Similarly, when I, I started college, I went to a, a liberal arts college that was super intense. And I remember getting there and on the first couple of weeks just being absolutely blown away by how smart all of the other students were. And my instinct wasn't to react to that as, you know, a great opportunity to learn from them and with them. To me, it was a competitive push for me to kind of rise to their level and get better. And so I think learning was always sort of a, you know, all about the destination and all about the speed to the destination for me for a really long time. The the first real point where that changed was actually during my time at Udemy. You know, one of my, my responsibilities as a part of Udemy was to help build up the supply side of the platform which was basically about helping experts become instructors at a really large scale. And what that meant is I, over the years, literally worked with, you know, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of instructors to help them take their expertise and distill it down into a course and become a teacher, many of them for the first time. And I think pretty, you know, core to that um, was a lot of belief that um, the way that you can kind of cross that divide from being a learner to being a teacher was to you know be a part of community and to ask others for help and ask others for support. And so I think that was a moment where learning really shifted from being 
you know, a competitive endeavor to get from point A to point B to more of a continuous communal endeavor. This also happened to be a time when I was working at Udemy and, you know, never had a job I was remotely qualified for every time I started to figure it out, the target moved. And so learning became communal. It became continuous. It became kind of an exercise to, to do cooperatively with people. And I think that kind of, you know, shift in gears from learning being a competitive thing to it being a continuous loop where maybe, you know, teaching is the final stage of, of learning and those two are connected informs a little bit more how I approach it today, which is you always have to be learning. You never actually get to that destination. And it's more about kind of who you're working with and learning from than, you know, necessarily how fast you're getting there. Um, yeah, that is very, very similar uh, on, on my end as well. With the early years, it's super awesome that were some of the best learning years I've had myself. So one of the questions that I prepared has actually been written by ChatGPT. Okay. And at the end, I'm going to ask you which one of those questions you think might have been written by ChatGPT to, to see if, if it is somewhat discernible or, or not. Just a, a small thing. Sounds good. <laughs> so the, the first thing I want to ask you, so you spent a big chunk of at least your, your last few years thinking about learning online, right? building Udemy and kind of everything that, that that entailed. From a learning perspective, from a learning product perspective, I guess, kind of the product that you help build, what do you think you got right? And what do you think you got wrong? Mm, that's a great question. So in terms of what, what we did well at, at Udemy, I think our our underlying point of view in terms of learning would maybe have kind of like two foundational pillars to it, right? One is we don't know best, and so let's build a platform that connects teachers with students, but let's largely get out of the way. And so let's kind of focus on making sure we're creating as little friction and as much speed as we can to get experts to create their courses and teach online. And I think the other side of that was we were very much building a horizontal platform as opposed to a vertical platform, meaning we made a deliberate decision to build tools and features and our overall platform architecture in such a way that it scaled and spanned well across different topics, meaning you were able to teach and learn Python programming or piano or you know communication skills for business all on the same platform. It wasn't going to be a platform that had kind of very specific, deep vertical features in any one of those individual buckets. I think in terms of, of what we got right, actually both of, of those two pillars, I think ended up being pretty solid and sound for the moment that we were playing in within kind of the, the overall arc of historical progression for, for ed tech and for a professional development. And so I think we were able to build a kind of scaled platform really, really quickly that worked across a lot of different disciplines. So we had this assumption that basically like 80% of the learning experience was going to be similar and overlapping across all these topics. So let's focus on that common area first, rather than the specifics of a given domain. That allowed us to, to sort of get a platform that would scale quickly. And then we spent a lot of time and energy thinking about how do we, let's say, you know, 
get instructors to be able to teach at scale. And to give you a sense, 80 plus percent of instructors who taught on Udemy, who teach on Udemy today, had never been actual teachers before. They were experts. They may have written a book. They may have been doing lectures. They may have taught in a different format, but there were a lot of folks teaching that had never been teachers before. So we had to sort of focus on teaching teachers to teach at scale, if you will. I think we got both of those right. And I think that was a large part of what allowed Udemy to scale. But I think it also allowed us to scale very specifically as a kind of professional skills oriented, on-demand, asynchronous, I would say more passive end of the spectrum learning platform, <laughs> which again was very much what the moment was kind of demanding and calling for just in a, an overall historical perspective. Now, what did we get wrong or, or where could we have invested more than we did? I think absolutely because our orientation was, you know, reduce the friction to getting content on the platform and focus on the kind of like horizontal platform that's going to work across all different areas. Our number one agenda wasn't always how do we drive activation and engagement and actually outcomes within a given course taking learning experience. And I think that, you know, again, wasn't the the dimension of competition within EdTech at that time. But over the years, as the EdTech kind of professional landscape has evolved, the competitive dimension has absolutely increasingly been about activation, engagement, actual outcomes on the skill side. And I think that, you know, was certainly an area that for a lot of years was lower in the pecking order of where Udemy was making their investments. Come. Yeah, that makes makes a lot of sense. Indeed, the 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 bar has shifted. So in it, in Absolutely. a form, you put the you moved the entire space forward, but with that, the bar has gone up as well. And so that is a different thing today than it was at the time. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there were a lot of things that Udemy and other similar players did to kind of change the the dimension of competition from just you know getting your content online to you know, quantity and relevance and specificity of content. And then ultimately over time to quality of content, Udemy was absolutely a big kind of force in, in pushing a lot of that forward. And now as a, a couple of other, you know, pieces of the equation have shifted and it's become about, you know, engagement as the primary competitive differentiator within the space. It's a, a new flavor of, you know, both kind of the experience that you need to be able to deliver and the product you need to be able to deliver. That certainly a lot of those kind of you know, scaled online platforms are now looking to figure out new ways to, you know, deliver that experience given the the horizontal and, and on-demand architecture they're starting with. Yeah, that's actually a, a great segue into my next question, actually, which is the, what are you most excited about today? Yeah, I mean, I, I am I am really excited that the, the that current dimension of competition is engagement, right? And I'm, I'm actually really excited to see how, um, engagement as a competitive differentiator will recognize will sort of reconcile with scalability right because i think scalability and ubiquity have certainly been something that have been really important for online learning for a long time which is why you have a lot of these big platforms but when you think about the types of learning that do best in terms of driving activation and engagement and outcomes they tend not to be these big scaled experiences they tend to be much more intimate which is why I think you start to see more and more companies today that are focused on things like, you know, cohorted learning, which in a lot of ways is is very much just a, a, a new buzzword for slightly older school version of, you know, intimate, synchronous educational experiences. 
But I think what will be really exciting is to see how those two things can meet each other in the middle, right? How can new technology come to work to actually help us scale those intimate, you know, high activation, high engagement, great outcome learning experiences? And then how can those scaled platforms adapt to the way that they're interacting with students and actually build something that can enhance activation and enhance outcomes? And how do we kind of find the right blend between those two? And how do you think about the link between engagement and outcomes here? One of the critiques that kind of comes with a focus on engagement is there's very different learning outcomes that we can come from different types of engagement, right? So how, how do you think about this as it, as it is evolving in the space? I think you're probably right to say that there are different flavors of engagement. So I'm being a little loose in kind of talking about engagement with a capital E as if it's a single monolithic thing. But I do think that engagement at large is a prerequisite for outcomes, no matter how you look at it, right? So, you know, there are various flavors of learning. There's, you know, high stakes, low frequency on one end of the spectrum, and there's low stakes, high frequency at the other end of the spectrum. There's, you know, learning which you're doing for yourself. So it's intrinsically motivated and the actual end learner is the, the force of driving that, that learning moment. There's learning that's mandated on you, courses you have to take for your employer. So there's a lot of different kind of formats and reasons and objectives for learning. And I think each of those comes with a different version of engagement that's required in order for you to achieve the objective that you set. But unequivocally, if you don't put in the work, if you don't actually spend the time working wherever you are on that kind of active versus passive scale of learning, you don't get any results. And so I think, you know, this is a sort of where I'm talking about the reconciliation of the, the sort of smaller, more intimate cohorted learning and the scaled big platforms is we do need to sort of figure out the version of engagement that is going to be most helpful in driving the specific objectives and specific outcomes that those different audiences with very different learning moments are bringing to those experiences. And how, how much of this is, in your mind, is social and how much of this is a way of interacting with material? Right? So there, there, there's the individual engagement with critically evaluating pieces of content around me and trying to learn from it. And there's the social learning experience, which would be brought to life a little bit through the cohort-based learning, the synchronous, mm -hmm. multiple people together a bit. Like how, how do you think about the role of social here and the role of individual engaged learning? I think I think the the short answer to maybe parrot back one of the most <laughs> trite you know future commentaries that you hear all the time right now is the the future is hybrid. And that applies to, to education and professional development as well, right? If you sort of think about the, the past versions of, of what education has looked like, we sort of start in a world where online education or, well, let's start with education, professional development. We started in a world where education was very much offline. It was rather fragmented. So lots of kind of smaller providers doing it in different locales and different kind of vertical areas. It was certainly something that was more synchronous than asynchronous. And it was probably a little bit more uh, focused on soft skills, right? Uh, that was like where we started in terms of what education looked like. We moved as you started to see the, the MOOCs and other online platforms come into place like Udemy toward a world where all of a sudden education became very much asynchronous 
So on-demand courses skewed more toward professional skills and really more hard skills, professional skills than anything else. It was obviously something that was online. And so we kind of migrated to a place where the the sort of version of, of professional development most people were seeing and experiencing was really, really different. My guess as to, to where things go from here is that, you know, the, the sort of solution we land in is, is really much more of a hybrid one. And so we end up in a place where it's a combination of asynchronous and synchronous experiences. It's, you know, a combination of hard and soft skills. It's a combination of offline and online. So I think even in that kind of binary that you're presenting, is it about kind of social or, or is it about, you know, some of these more independent activities? To me, I think the answer is probably that more and more learning experiences are going to need to combine those in a thoughtful way that maximizes the efficiency for the learning company to deliver that material and for the student to digest it. And so it's going to be all about figuring out that hybrid recipe, and that will be what becomes more and more important. And you know, suffice to say that the hybrid recipe that works in one specific type of learning use case might differ from another, but I think we're probably moving through the world where it's you know, just online or just offline or just async or just synchronous, and there'll be a lot more kind of hybrid combination style learning experiences out there. Okay. So you mentioned already previously kind of very quickly the framework that you that you and I discussed a few times in terms of how you're thinking about the industry of kind of how, how various players are, are are split up in the various various spaces to to explore. Can you talk a little bit more about that framework and why you think it, it is a it has been useful to you to think about the space? And I assume the framework you're talking about is sort of the stakes versus frequency. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So I, I think one, you know, rather broad strokes way of taking the ed tech professional development landscape, which is really broad, really, you know, dynamic and really varied and organizing it into something that, that I can you know, personally digest and, and think through is to let go of what the companies are doing and to put it in the context of where that learner is on their journey and therefore what type of learning moment are they dealing with. And so one way to do that is to think about the relative frequency of what they're learning and then the relative stakes of, of that learning experience, right? Is this high stakes or low stakes? And Maybe like a, a soft way of, of kind of framing that out is you end up with you know, one type of learning experience, which is, let's call it high stakes and low frequency. So you don't go through this learning moment very often, but when you do, it's really impactful to your career. So it's a very important kind of uh, high stakes and, and can change the trajectory of, of your life experience. And so things like, you know, universe, going to university falls into this bucket right? If you are going to university, you're probably not going to do that more than once. And it is a very costly, very high stakes experience. And therefore it's something you take very, very seriously. It's a high consideration educational experience, very intense for a, a finite amount of time. On the other end of the spectrum, you have what I would call uh, lower stakes, higher frequency learning moments. I think Udemy really aggressively played in this end of the spectrum. Right? So this is about more continuous learning, acquiring new skills, but really acquiring those new skills with an objective to be able to use them today. Right, So a really common experience for a Udemy student is 
I'm coming to you because my boss asked me to do a project. In order to do that project, I need to know how to do pivot tables. So I come to you to me with a, you know, kind of just in time, urgent, motivating discovery need. I look through Udemy and instead of just buying the pivot tables course, I make a slightly more just in case purchase decision and I buy the comprehensive Microsoft Excel course. And so what I'm really doing is, you know, learning a skill, which I'm going to use. So it's not no stakes learning, but whether or not I can use it is going to impact my ability to do this one project. It's not necessarily going to change my career trajectory forever. So I think that's kind of like a broad spectrum that you can then think of mapping different types of learning moments against. And obviously there are things in the middle, like, you know, getting certifications for new jobs that maybe don't happen once in a lifetime, but they happen a couple of times or they happen once every couple of years. And so I think that gives you a little bit of a sense of, you know, what the type of objective in the moment is for a learner and therefore what type of learning experience you'd have to craft for them. Yeah, that's, it's a very useful way of thinking about it. It definitely has shaped uh, some of the way that I'm thinking about about the space as well. So really useful. Um, within Udemy, with Udemy being a marketplace, so there was a ton of content and, well, people that made content available, other people that consumed it. I imagine you must have thought about curation, quality of content, and mm -hmm. what the effect of that is on the on both ends of that marketplace how has your thinking evolved on that topic specifically around the subject of learning uh, how it impacts people's ability to learn how it impacts the ecosystem in terms of what you're mm. building up yeah it's a great question i think the the question of how do you define quality in a learning experience and then how do you drive that quality of, of learning experience and how does it shift and evolve over time is is one that I've you know spent years thinking about and was a big part of shaping with Udemy and and certainly one honestly that I think a lot about today in terms of what new technologies might do to that conversation. So maybe we can start with the Udemy piece and then if you want to talk through the the future forward piece. But from Udemy's perspective, there were almost a couple of different chapters in our progression of relationship with quality. So as a marketplace business, the first chapter was we had to figure out a way to break the chicken and the egg problem, right? And this is classic for every marketplace, but you know, there's no demand unless you have supply and there's no supply unless you have demand. So where do you start? The way that Udemy started was to actually leverage Creative Commons license content. So we would take content that was on YouTube or elsewhere on the internet. We would basically like piecemeal that together and, and create these courses. And then those courses became something that students could take for free, right? So that was our kind of first entry point into breaking the chicken and the egg problem. We sort of hacked supply in order to get students on the platform. Now, once we got those students on the platform, we actually had bait to go out and have conversations with would-be instructors and get more supply on the platform. And so that sort of moved us into stage two, but in stage two, our gating growth ingredient was supply. So we had to do whatever we could do to get as much supply onto the platform as possible. And so that meant doing a lot of unscalable things in terms of literally, you know, finding people that had books and helping them create videos. It, you know, had us editing courses that were in different formats, making them compatible with our format and migrating them over. But basically our goal was to get as much platform, as content on the platform as we possibly could. And that meant that one, we were more actively involved in doing things that you wouldn't normally do on a, a user-generated content platform. 
And two, our threshold for quality was basically non-existent. If you want to put your content on Udemy, we'll take it, right? We would like as, as much content as we could. And this was, you know, the, the very early days. Udemy started kind of 2009-ish, monetizing 2011-ish. And so this was in the, the very, very early days. In 2013, when I joined, one of the, the big things that we were trying to figure out was, all right, we're now getting enough content on the platform where we start to need to have a point of view of what quality means on Udemy. And so then that became about us coming up with a set of standards. And, you know, because Udemy is a very, I think, data-oriented, you know, e-commerce platform in, in some ways, the way that we approached that question of what is course quality was through data. So what we did was we took a bunch of courses from our marketplace. We coded them with data and attributes, you know, everything from, you know, relatively, you know, easy to identify firm attributes. What is the topic of the course? What's the subtopic of the course? What's the learning objective? What's the intended audience to slightly more subjective attributes. So for instance, we would be tagging an instructor and we would be trying to distinguish between whether that instructor was, you know, credentialed charming, funny, right? Very subjective attributes, but certainly things that would impact the learner's experience. So we tagged all of these courses and then we correlated them in this big nasty regression analysis with what we deemed kind of a proxy for positive outcomes, which were, you know, course consumption rates and course reviews. And it was an imperfect, you know, substitute for course quality, but it was a good starting point. And it actually gave us about 17 different factors that we found were correlated, if not causal, correlated with student success. That then became the basis for our kind of starting point for course quality, which we used as an upstream, you know, way to, to grade courses. And I think that was, you know, a good starting point. Obviously those course quality standards, you know, we set up so that they could change and evolve over time so that, you know, as we learned more and as we got different feedback from the marketplace, we'd be able to adapt them. And similarly, as we went into new geographies, the definition of success and the criteria would be different for a Python course in Japan than it would, you know, a communication course in Germany. And so it changed and evolved. And then kind of the, the final chapter was we shifted from being an upstream quality control to actually reducing the barrier on our upstream check of quality and eventually moving it downstream so that we were letting more content on the platform, but we were using student feedback in terms of, of their responses to the courses in order to actually decide how much visibility those courses were going to get. And so the best courses that were really making students happy and successful got more visibility and were more prominent in discovery. And the ones that were creating a bad learning experience frankly got buried. And we were very open and direct with instructors as we were going through this progression with the community. At the beginning, we were kind of all about, let's get as many courses as we possibly can. Then it was about getting the right courses in the right shape. And eventually it got to the point where I would say candidly to instructors, if you make a terrible course, it's my job to find it and bury it. And that then obviously kind of created an environment where you started to see more and more quality as people competed to create better outcomes. Yeah, that's a, that is a progression indeed <laughs> to kill the bad courses. And how do you, how do you see the role of, of certification and qualification in this environment, kind of in this asynchronous learning? How do you see it evolve from where we are? So right, right now we kind of have a, I guess a certificate type environment with more or less kind of 
credibility and, and significance added to it. But where do you see mm -hmm. it going from here? And to be clear, you're specifically asking about the the student side of certification. I'm talking. Yes, sorry, I'm talking about student. Okay. The qualifications that people get by acquiring skills from these platforms. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a great question. I would say, you know, the the first version of Udemy was certainly built on the premise that certification of skills acquisition was not as important as learning the underlying skills themselves. And even within that, we were about giving people the opportunity and the access to acquire skills more so than we were about actually kind of validating those outcomes and certifying those outcomes. And so I think we were playing on, you know, probably the end of the spectrum where we were serving a highly motivated learner, again, in that slightly, you know, more frequent, lower stakes learning moment. And so certification wasn't as important as it was that that student that came to us to learn pivot tables actually learned pivot tables enough to be able to solve the problem that brought them to us on that given day. Now, I think that was very much the starting point, but what we started to see as we built out you know, more and more content, it was that the importance of certification varied within our business, right? So it wasn't uniformly important and it wasn't uniformly unimportant. There were certain geographies where certification carried much, much more weight than others. So if you were to, to be a little bit loose about it and compare markets, Germany and Japan looked very similar. Credentials were very important to those two markets, but Brazil, Turkey, the US, considerably less so. So we started to see some geographic patterns. And then certainly we saw different category patterns. So if you looked at areas like you know IT, that was an area where actually there was enough kind of pre-existing industry inertia toward certifications, private sector certifications, that that was something that we couldn't ignore. We actually needed to make sure that there were certain courses that were explicitly linked and tied to certifications and that the courses were good enough to ensure those outcomes. So I think you know, that was kind of the early stages of Udemy trying to, to sort of migrate a little bit more toward that. Now, I think what is interesting is to sort of ask the question of you know, the, the world that we're in today, in some ways we're, we're stretching the barrier on that spectrum that I talked about, right? On the you know higher stakes, lower frequency end of the spectrum, it's becoming more about those intimate, you know, offline, online learning experiences. But on the low stakes, high frequency side, and this is really where where I think Bindstone is is playing and and delivering a lot of value. Learning is something that you're doing continuously, voraciously in all different kinds of formats. Right, you're reading, you're doing podcasts, you're watching videos. Yes, you're taking courses, but it's an ecosystem of a bunch of different activities that you're doing to learn. And it is a constant steady stream. And so I think the real question is actually on that end of the spectrum, are there certain types of activities or certain segments of those high frequency, low stakes learning where actually some type of a credentialization is, is valuable, whether that credentialization is valuable for the learner because it helps them to show a portfolio of, of what they've acquired through all of this really you know high volume learning or it's important to another stakeholder who's effectively the buyer of those skills, right? If you're an employer and you want to understand, you know, who's good at skill X or who is really deep at, you know, and motivated to learn skill Y, having some type of a third-party credential is is valuable. So I think there's still a little bit of an open question and a lot of jockeying around, you know, just where are those credentials going to be important? It won't be across every topic, across every learning environment, probably won't be across every geography. 
And who is going to be able to provide those, right? Is it going to be the platforms that are providing learning content? Is it going to be the employers who are doing that work themselves? Or is it going to be some third party who sort of sits in the middle? So there's there's quite a bit of kind of open open room to see how that plays out. And if if you had to guess, what say you were to build a company that tried to solve this today, what would be your approach? I think my approach would be to not assume that there's a horizontal solution and to assume that actually there might be a couple of verticals, so types of, of learning activities or, or segments of that low stakes, high frequency learning customer for which credentials matter the most. And I would probably look for a signal around which those areas are by looking at employers. Because if you think about the world of professional development today, the real end consumers of skills that are acquired by a learner are often companies, but companies have to do a lot of work to scrape and scratch to actually assess whether those people have the skills, right? And you see this by the type of like really exhaustive, painful interview experiences that they create to judge those skills. And so I would actually try to look at employers and say, what are the skills that you're really struggling to grade for, but are really important for you to be able to have some type of an external marker. You used to maybe just cheat and say, if they've got a university degree, that's good enough for me. But now you're trying to actually do more legwork to evaluate a given skill. What are those skills? And then let's start with two or three or four of those as hypotheses to try to build credentialization around and then expand through adjacencies from there. I think if you were to try to create like a a horizontal credential before you figured out a couple of those vertical ones, you probably would be you know, more likely to, to have a hard time getting there. Okay. And, and how do you think about the type of credential? Like when you, when you look at kind of the traditional degree, the certificates, like these things become smaller and smaller. We're now talking about micro credentials. Last few years, we had these, this idea of stackable credentials that came up. Like, how do you think about the unit of credential here and how that kind of plays into that. Yeah, the unit of credentials, it's, it's a really interesting way to, to think about it. You know, I, I wonder if, if one way to think about it is just to think about the, the type of skills that you're credentializing, right? Hard skills are inherently going to be easier to credentialize and therefore a little bit less valuable to, to crack as a big kind of scaled business opportunity. Whereas maybe some of those softer skills, you know, things like communication, ability to learn are much more pervasive and broad in their application, but much harder to figure out. I'm not sure exactly that the, the size or the atomic unit or of what you would be credentialing is something that's fully known or would be the same across every vertical. But again, what I would probably try to do is, is look at the demand side of credentials, which is companies really, really get in the weed with their hiring processes to try to figure out what it is they're actually trying to evaluate and trying to suss out and then use that to, to map it back to the the underlying credential point of view. Yeah, so it's a, it's a really interesting question. Re recently, I've, I've been questioning if there is some inspiration to take from some of the gaming world. So the you've got skill trees that have been part of massive online games or role-playing games really for a while you have the level mechanism that like is is infinite in some games you have kind of infinite scaling and i, I wonder 
I have been wondering recently if some, especially as you described on the, on the soft skill side of things, where there is such an infinite spectrum almost mm-hmm. to look at, I don't, I don't think anyone can say like, I have mastered communication. Like there are ways right. more to, to go. And so I wonder if you end up with an entirely different paradigm where it's no longer a qualification for a level and like you've kind of leveled out. It's almost like you more a way to showcase how far along the path you have gone through right. demonstrated any... progression exactly demonstrated progression right. without a destination but only a direction yeah i think that's interesting maybe the 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 thing that will be tricky to link between the the gaming analogy and an education analogy particularly within soft skills is and and i'll com- i'll reveal myself as not being a gamer so we can delete this if it's a stupid comment i think of the the sort of like hierarchy and leveling within a game as benefiting from having a contained ecosystem right so the definition of strength or agility within a given game is something that can be defined within that given game Mm -hmm. whereas if you think of soft skills the definition that one company who again is the sort of consumer for this credentialing might apply to tenacity or to you know communication right any of these sort of soft attributes would differ quite a bit from company to company and so in some ways like a prerequisite to coming up with that kind of progressive approach to credentialing is you also have to come up with a common definition and a common unit and so i think you know you were kind of asking the question where would you start maybe that's actually the place to start right again is working with the demand side working with companies to effectively create the, the the skills map and the definition map about what actually they're hunting for. And then that allows you to sort of create that progressive scale. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very interesting, interesting challenge that is uh, someone is bound to try and solve soon. Mm-hmm. Sure. As we are kind of post the start of Udemy and well, and of course here at Uber, kind of a, a big one to drive a similar ecosystem change, right? The access to learning has dramatically changed over the last 10 years, well, 15 years. How did you or do you think about driving equality at the same time as drive it, uh, building a business? in this space i imagine this must have come up in the as you were building potentially even with 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 udemy but the idea of like okay where does money come from and where where does the monetization model of something at learning contributes or takes away from kind of equality goals to of access or or or, or mm-hmm. in in that realm how, how have you thought how do you think about it and and how have you thought about it in the past yeah it's a it's a really interesting question I think that you know, maybe as a starting point, you can almost look at what Coursera did versus what Udemy did as a little bit of a an interesting juxtaposition and approach, right? Because I would say both were fueled by the mission of democratizing education, but each of them took a very different approach, right? So Coursera's approach was very much to take the kind of most prominent and visible and important and trusted institutions of the time, which were you know top-tier universities, help them create content, bring that content online, and by doing that, expand access in you know an unprecedented way. And so really it was about expanding access and democratizing education 
by focusing on the, the demand side, right? Once you got that online, anybody could learn, anybody had access. And Coursera very much started out free, and that was a big piece of that. Udemy, I think, took a different approach to solving the exact same problem, which was focus on democratizing education. But what we did was, in order to democratize access to education, we thought we wanted to focus on democratizing the supply of education. So rather than focus on top tier universities, we actually said, okay, actually anybody can become a teacher, right? Everyone with an expertise can come to Udemy, take that expertise, distill it down into a course and share it with the world. And so we tried to democratize education by focusing on democratizing teaching. So kind of two sides of, of, a, of a similar coin, and I think both were kind of complementary and compatible in that given moment. And certainly you know, we were both thinking about kind of what that implied in terms of access to education. I think when you think about equality in, in education, you've kind of got to be thinking about both sides of that equation, right? You need to be thinking about who is able to access education. And that means keeping education approachable and cheap enough that it is actually something that you know is, is not going to be an obstacle to people learning. And that was absolutely something we talked about constantly. It's part of the reason why even when the early days, our instructors would tell us their courses were worth thousands of dollars, Udemy kept pushing the price point lower to increase accessibility. And, you know, over the years, our average price point was maybe closer to, you know, 10 to $20 versus those thousands. And in countries like India, where purchasing power was much different, it was maybe 40% of that, right? So accessibility was always front and center because we wanted to make sure that people even if they were paying for education, had access, and specifically they had access of opportunity, not necessarily the quality of outcome. On you know the, the other side of things, we also wanted to make sure that there was, let's call it access of different vantage points and different types of teachers, right? We, we didn't necessarily believe that the best teachers in the world were at the best universities in the world. And so our push toward equality was actually by pushing different access of different viewpoints onto the platform. Right, We didn't believe that there was a single right teacher for a given topic. And for any given topic, there were actually lots of different ways that you could teach it. And so that diversity of teaching approach, of background, of, of perspective, of experience created then a lot more alternatives for students to be able to find the right version of how they wanted to learn. And so I think that that kind of like explosion of choice and explosion of different options was, was very much kind of core to who we were and what we were focusing on in the early days. Now, you sort of ask the question of like, where does that go from here? And I, I think what will be interesting is that we've, we've moved very well beyond the era where just the quantity or even the quality of content is the competitive dimension, right? It is actually all about engagement. And I think one of the things that if you're a platform like Coursera or, or Udemy, you'll need to be really careful of is not assuming that there's a one-size-fits-all recipe for what drives engagement. And understanding that actually having different perspectives, different types of teachers, different formats is going to meet the different learning needs of different students. And so you want to maintain some version of you know, diversity and relevance in the offering that you're building up. But at the same time, my guess is that the actual kind of flow of new courses may need to shrink down necessarily because the value of each incremental course is, is lower and lower. And so it'll be a little bit of a balance between how do you achieve equality and how do you create the right opportunities without just throwing quantity at the wall to make that happen. 
Yeah, that's that's a new challenge indeed. So the, the way that I think about this sometimes is that the issue used to be about access to education, uh, mm-hmm. whether that was access to more information. And, and I never thought about it like exactly the way you framed it, but indeed like opening up more people to be teachers, to have the possibility mm-hmm. to teach, but also people being able to access that material. And we're, to your point, I think we've, to a degree come pretty far past yeah exactly we've got like there there's still progress to be made quite a lot of progress to be made but the i wonder if today the biggest limiting factor is not to what we were talking about before which is the credentialing or the the opportunity that the learning unlocks and so it is one thing that I have access to the learning, if it doesn't give me the same opportunities that somebody else gets, whether that is through their network or through their credentials, or two people with the same level of skill, one with a degree from an Ivy League university, one without, mm-hmm. even though they have the same level of skill, they will not have the same level of opportunity. Yeah, And so there's, there's something around how do we democratize the opportunity that education unlocks. I think I think that's an interesting way to to think about it. And you're you're probably you're you're brushing up against it, but there's probably a piece of that which is leveling the playing field in terms of actually measuring and making those skills visible. So that to to your point, the person with an Ivy League education and the person without it, both it is visible that they have the same level of skill. Yeah. Right. So that sort of levels that playing field, which I think, you know, relates to the the micro credentialization question and, and conversation. And then I think there's there's also a piece of it which is making sure that in the process of identifying opportunity, that both of those people have access to the same level of support and that you're kind of leveling up folks without the networks to be able to to see those opportunities. I, I you know have have worked with a couple of like tech boot camps, for instance, and one of the big things that tech boot camps are different in terms of comparing them to somebody like Udemy is their central value proposition is the outcome, right? You are going through that, you know, high stakes, low frequency learning moment because you are trying to get a job. That's the thing that you're buying. And so they add on a lot of different kind of services in order to get you ready. So it's, you know, both services to make sure that you're actively learning and engaged and you don't fall off the train. It's services to help you build your resume and to prep. And so it becomes almost like a a bolt on counselor slash, you know, job readiness onboarding ramp, which in a lot of ways, thinking about how you might do that at scale is really interesting. Even thinking about how you can leverage community among learners as a way to level up networks and, and make you know, opportunities more transparent is another interesting way. So all of this sort of brings me back to where we, we were talking about earlier, which is the answer of what this looks like in the future is it's it's a hybrid soup of all of these different things. I really think you'll see less and less just asynchronous online experiences or just synchronous offline experiences. And you'll see more and more combinations of, all right, this piece is synchronous offline. This piece is online. This piece is an interaction with ChatGPT and it's a, you know, exploration follow-up of things you've learned. This part is community driven, right? And so you'll start to see different types of learning for different pieces of the overall experience, particularly for companies that want to start to bridge that gap between, you know, delivering opportunities to actually delivering better and better outcomes for the people that put in the work. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, I have one last question for today. What is the one question you have today that you wish you had an answer to? 
how we can change the way that we learn as individuals, which I think is a really interesting topic. I think as I sort of like step back and and I have two young kids, I spend a lot of time thinking about how do I spend my time, you know, investing in things that are going to help deliver them the future that they deserve. And so that kind of gets you pretty quickly thinking about bigger scale, systemic global problems, you know, things like climate change, things like inequality. And so I'm actually interested to, to know how we can, you know, not just shift how we learn as individuals, but how we can start to learn as a kind of global common community, right? How can we start to actually create a little bit more of a sense of communal awareness around some of these common space problems so that we can actually learn and make progress? Because I think when you take a, an honest, hard look at the world today, what you see is a lot of siloed thinking, a lot of local optimums, and a lot of really common global problems that are existential in nature. And so, you know, I, I start to then see, find myself moving from an area of interest, which is, you know, how do we help individuals learn better to how can we actually as a society start thinking about ourselves collectively and learn how to actually make decisions and make changes in a communal way before it's too late. That is a good question indeed. Wish I had the answer to that too. <laughs> Okay, well, I mean, that leaves me with, with the questions. Thank you very much for the conversation we had today already. Yeah, it was fun. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, how uh, how's it been? Your 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 VR virginity is gone. <laughs> <laughs> it was good. I think it was interesting. It's funny how quickly um, you sort of stop paying attention to that piece of it and just right. becomes another conversation. So thank you very much. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. The way we learn and the way we work is changing rapidly. Artificial intelligence is automating ever more tasks around us, putting pressure on all of us to rescale and upscale at accelerated rates while dealing with a level of unprecedented information overload. The education system, built for an age of information scarcity and around a broadcast model of teachers and learners, is simply no longer fit for purpose. But what can be put in its place? I'm your host, Joshua Vola, CEO at Mindstyle, and I hope today's conversation shed light on at least some of the problems we're facing. If you thought today's conversation was interesting, I invite you to subscribe to our podcast by searching for hashtag AskWhy in your favorite podcast app, or follow us on YouTube or TikTok and catch the video feed of these conversations, which are happening in VR.